If you have your own copy of God's Word, I'd encourage you to to turn to John chapter 17. If not, uh, it's printed for you in the bulletin. We'll have it on uh, the screens for you as well. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, um, we are finishing up our our look at the life and works of C.S. Lewis this morning. And one of the books that we didn't get to, there's a lot of books uh, that are out there that we could have done, but one of the books we didn't get to is a book called Miracles. And uh, in C.S. Lewis's book called Miracles, uh, he talks about the challenge of knowing and understanding God. And he said that that we should imagine that we were, for a minute, uh, two-dimensional creatures living in a two-dimensional world. So all of us are squares. Try to think about that for a minute. And then he said, imagine we're all squares living in a two-dimensional world, and all of a sudden we encounter a cube, a a three-dimensional structure. And all of our lives, we've only had two dimensions to work work within, and then we behold a three-dimensional structure, and it is so different than anything that we have ever perceived. Well, in many ways, Lewis was saying, this is what we are confronted with when we try to understand the nature of God and who He is. But that's the very thing that we've been trying to do this Lenten season. If you've been with us, you'll know that we have been peering into the relationship of God the Father and God the Son and how they worked together to accomplish our redemption. And the reality is, is we can only understand part of this relationship. We can only understand part of the nature of God, but we do know what the Scriptures reveal to us. But we also recognize there's a lot of mystery involved in it as well. And so the plot thickens as we come to to John chapter 17, and we see a very long prayer. It's actually one of the longest prayers recorded for us in the Scriptures But it's a prayer between God the Son and God the Father. And so we're only going to read part of this. I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 19. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. And he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence, with the glory I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world, Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours." All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the Scripture might be fulfilled. 
But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just that I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is God's word. Father, speak to us now through your word. We're thankful for the promises that say that your spirit attends your word to change our lives. So we pray that we would hear the voice of you this morning and that our lives would be changed as a result. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you can tell from from our passage, this is an incredibly rich section of Scripture that we are looking at. And so I've decided to do it over two weeks, to look at this whole prayer over two weeks, because you can really think of this prayer uh, in three sections. Uh, The first section, which is verses 1 to 5, talks about Jesus and his relationship with the Father. And the next section, 6 to 19, uh, talks about Jesus' relationship with his disciples. And then the remaining section, which I hope to look at next week, Lord willing, uh, talks about Jesus' relationship with you and I, that personal relationship he has with each and every one of us. And so this week we have a lot to cover. We're going to look at those first two sections. And the first really talks about Jesus' relationship with the Father. Verses 1 to 5, Jesus says to his Father, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. If you go all throughout the Gospels, you'll see very quickly that Jesus made a habit of consistently praying with the Father. He would sneak away sometimes really early in the morning, or he would sneak away late at night because he thrived. He lived on his time alone in prayer with God the Father. But what makes this passage so unique is that we actually get to see the substance of those prayers. We get to see what Jesus prayed all those times with the Father about. And as you come to this section, you see that Jesus talks a lot about his relationship with his Father, and he talks about it related to this idea of glory. He talks about how how God the Son, uh, he glorified God the Father from all of eternity past, and Jesus is looking forward to glorifying his Son for all of eternity in the future as well. And in many ways, Jesus is talking about how he is eager to return back in many ways to that glorified and glorifying state with the Father. Now, we don't use that word glorify and glory a whole lot in our culture today, but I think we all probably understand what Jesus means when he talks about this. To glorify something is is to lift it up. It's to to sing the praises of something or uh, to draw the attention of something for all to see. I think of the the parent on the sidelines when his child uh, scores a goal and wants everybody else on the sidelines to see that his child scored the goal. They're glorifying, raising up, lifting up the accomplishments of something that they've loved. 
We also know the term glory hound. You may know some people in your life that you would say are glory hounds. These are people that are always uh, seeking credit for the good and always distancing themselves from the bad things that tend to happen. They seem to want to make everything about them and their advancement. Uh, They, in some ways, need to be esteemed and need to be thought of well by everyone who is around them. And whenever we talk about someone who's a glory hound, we always think about that uh, in a negative connotation. And largely, we're right to think about that as something that is negative. But within the perfection of the Trinity... The Father is all about glorifying the Son, and the Son is all about glorifying the Father. In effect, God is perfectly right to work for His own glory and to lift up His own name. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. The Scriptures make it clear that God was about this from the beginning— lifting up his own glory, and it will be like that for all of eternity in the future. But what Jesus is alluding to here is something that is unique, because he seems to be speaking about a special glory that is about to come from his work of redemption, from Jesus fulfilling his mission here on earth. You see, what the gospel story tells us is that in some degree, and we don't understand the ins and and outs of it, but to some degree, Jesus set aside a measure of the glory of heaven to become one of us. But we also see that even as he was one of us, it was still his mission to glorify God through the work of salvation that he was accomplishing in his incarnation. Jesus tells us about that in verse 3. He says this, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see, what Jesus is saying here is this. He's, He's declaring the essential of the gospel message that says this, that our sin, your sin, my sin, it has left all of us helpless before a holy God. Not only are we helpless, but we deserve divine judgment. We deserve punishment because of the ways that we have rebelled against God. And yet the gospel tells us that Jesus came to take the punishment. He came to, to take the punishment to secure eternal life for those people who place their faith in him. The gospel tells us he did it because he loves us deeply. He did it because he wanted to make us objects of his radical compassion and loving kindness. He did it because he wanted to pour grace and mercy on those people who are unworthy. But he also did it. He also did it to bring glory to God. And what that means is is that your salvation, my salvation, the work of the church is all intended ultimately to bring glory to God the Son, to bring glory to God the Father. One of the the battle cries of the Protestant Reformation uh, was soli deo gloria, and what that meant was to God alone be the glory for all things. 
And what it reminds us is that all of this, all of the glory for our rescue ultimately belongs to Jesus. We are the ones who are helpless and hopeless. We are the ones with nothing to contribute to our rescue except for our own spiritual bankruptcy. All of it is purely a work of God's grace, and therefore God ought to get all the glory for it. We have nothing to boast of in and of ourselves. What it also reminds us is that if God is indeed passionate about his own glory, then shouldn't we also be passionate about God's glory as well? After all, the chief end of man is to to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That is our essential purpose as human beings. And so the question comes to all of us is, how much of your life is about hoarding glory for yourself, or is it about pointing to the glory of God? Are you the one that tends to be always seeking for credit or praise, or is your whole life organized around giving God the glory that is due Him? Is your purpose simply to diminish as you point others to Christ and His glory within your life? You see, what our passage reminds us is that perfect glory exists between the Father and the Son. That's what Jesus is talking about here. But in the second section, we see his attention shift. And his attention shifts to his disciples. You read about that in verses 6 to 19. If you read the Gospels at all, you know that Jesus spent uh, uh, three years of his life intensely with this group called his disciples. And the number of those disciples tended to ebb and flow depending on those three years and what point in those three years the Gospels find us. But we also learn that Jesus spent a a substantial amount of that time with 12 men, 12 apostles, one who would eventually betray uh, Jesus Christ. But he did everything with those men for those three years. And what you get the sense of in this prayer is Jesus is realizing that he's about to leave them. He's about to return back to the Father, which he's very excited and eager to do, but he's also concerned about these men whom he leaves behind. As I thought about that this week, I thought about uh, a time when uh, we only had one child, and uh, our oldest son was two years old, and uh, we knew from the time that he was born that at some point uh, he was going to have to have a surgery, and it was a very simple surgery. It was not very complex or anything like that, and so uh, he was about two years old when we took him to, to have this surgery, and we knew that we'd at one point have to walk him back into the operating room and be with him while the anesthesiologist put the little mask on him. And my wife and I looked at each other, neither one of us really wanting to do this. Um, and then I drew the, the, the short straw and uh, tucked my son back to the operating room and held him in my arms while they put the, uh, the anesthesiologist mask on him and, and felt him go limp in my arms after that. And I left him in the OR, I went back into the waiting room, and my wife will tell you I promptly sobbed for about 20 minutes after that. Now, it was probably irrational that I did that because I could certainly trust the medical professionals that I had left my son with, but there was just something about leaving my son, entrusting my son into the care of someone else that just wrecked me emotionally for about 20 minutes 
sitting there in that waiting room. And I get the sense that that's a little bit about what Jesus is feeling as he prays this prayer for these men who he is about to leave. You see, he's physically leaving his disciples, and I'm sure to some level that was emotional for him. And so he needed to entrust them to the Father. So as he's about to leave them, he prays some significant prayers for these disciples. He prays for their unity, that they would be unified. Keep them in your name, he says to God, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Jesus is saying, is that beautiful unity that exists in the Trinity, may that be true of my disciples as well. He prays for their joy, verse 13, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. He prays that their joy would equal the joy that exists in God's own heart within the Trinity. He prays for their protection. He says in verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. You see, Jesus recognizes that the world is going to be hostile to his apostles, to his disciples. That if they're going to follow him, they're going to treat them the way he is about to be treated. But he also recognizes that they have a job to do in this world, despite the fact that they were about to face all sorts of rejection and even spiritual opposition. So he prays for their protection. In verse 17, he prays for their sanctification. He says, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. He he prays that they would grow in their relationship with God, that they would grow in their understanding of the gospel and their faith in God, even recognizing that it might not always be easy. That word sanctify that Jesus used, that's a refinement term, and sometimes those come in nice ways and sometimes those come in painful ways as well. Christ is praying that God would smooth out the rough edges and draw them closer to him. And then finally, he prays for their mission in verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. You see, he recognizes that that these apostles, that these first disciples had a very unique calling and a very unique mission. They were were called to, to carry on the teachings of Jesus They were called to build the foundation of this new living organization called the church. But he also recognized that they were about to face intense persecution and in most cases martyrdom, giving up their own lives for following Jesus. And so Jesus knows all this, and so he prays passionately and intensely for them, entrusting them to the perfection and care of God the Father. He prays deeply for his disciples. But friends, the reality of this is this, the reality of this passage, that he's praying for you and I too. He's praying all these things for you and I as well. Theologians for hundreds of years have called this the high priestly prayer. It's the the fancy name for this passage in John chapter 17. 
But what it picks up is a theme that Jesus is our high priest. And if you get a chance to go home and read Hebrews 7, that talks all about what it means that Jesus is the high priest. It says this in Hebrews 7, 25, that he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always, and catch this, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You know what that means? It means this, that Jesus didn't just accomplish the work of salvation for us on our behalf in the past. That certainly is a part of it, but it tells us that his work on our behalf continues. It continues on. He is continually interceding for us. It means that Jesus is now in the heavenly realm, always continually pleading for us, advocating for us, interceding for us, and praying for us before God the Father. He prays for our unity. He prays for our joy. He prays for our protection. He prays for our growth. And he prays for us as we engage on the mission that he's given to us. And once we become objects of the love of God, nothing can ever, ever separate us from that love. See, that's what Paul's talking about in Romans 8 where he says this, that I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You see, friends, his work is finished for us. That work on the cross is finished for us. But his love and care for us will never end. It will remain furiously constant and passionate for us for all of eternity. And that ought to be the greatest source of joy that he has given to us. Let's pray.